0: Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, Please visit this program's page on our website or app.
1: Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge
0: and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill
2: in us also the fear of your blessed commandments that we may overcome all carnal desires entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according
0: to your holy will for you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies O christ god
1: and to you we give glory together with your eternal father and your all holy gracious and life giving spirit both now and ever and unto ages of ages amen Amen. in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit Amen. amen
2: Thank you so much, Father Hezekiah. Our speaker this evening is a professor of theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville and vice president for biblical theology and mission effectiveness at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Dr. John Bergsma served as a Protestant pastor for four years before entering the Catholic Church in 2001, while pursuing a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, specializing in the Old Testament and the Dead Sea Scrolls. A close collaborator of Dr. Scott Hahn, Dr. Bergsma speaks regularly on Catholic radio and at conferences and parishes both nationally and internationally. He's written numerous academic articles and is the author of eight books, including the popular Bible Basics for Catholics from Ave Maria Press. He and his wife Dawn reside with their eight children in Steubenville, Ohio. Please join me in welcoming Dr. John Bergsma.
1: Welcome, Doctor. Good to have you back with us today. Yeah, it's great to be with you. And we've got such fantastic material to go over. We're going to be um, doing a four days on the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, the way this is going to break down is Matthew the man. That's mostly what we're going to be doing tonight. uh, The biography of St. Matthew. And then Matthew the uh, book. Uh, largely tomorrow night, and then Matthew the year uh, on Wednesday. And the, what I mean Matthew the year is that year A of the Novus Ordo lectionary, the uh, the Latin Rite lectionary uh, since Vatican II is devoted to St. Matthew. And so we'll look at how those gospel passages uh, lie across the calendar year Um, and talk a little bit about that on uh, Wednesday. And then Thursday, uh, we'll take the time that we have and make a deep dive into as many passages of Matthew as we can, especially highlighting the ones that are uh, coming up in the lectionary uh, for Lent. So that's kind of our marching orders for the next several days, and it's going to be Fantastic. So there's our little splash screen there. Matthew, the man, the book, the year, that's the basic plan. And then some deep diving into some some particular uh, episodes of Matthew. Let's go over some basic facts, brothers and sisters, about Matthew's gospel. It is the first gospel in many senses of that term. First of all, the church fathers Uh, tell us that Matthew wrote first. So it was the first gospel written, but also it's the first in the sense of priority because the church has typically encouraged us to read this gospel first. It's kind of the benchmark of the gospels. It's the measuring stick by which other gospels are measured. So when we say that Mark is a short gospel, by comparison to whom? Well, Matthew. When we say that Luke is a long gospel in comparison. Well, you got it to Matthew. And uh, when we say that John marches to the beat of his own drummer and is uh, has a different kind of organizational pattern, again, that is with reference to Matthew. So Matthew is kind of the benchmark gospel, the one that the church typically has placed first, reads the most in lectionary, and encourages us uh, to read first. But things that are kind of standard uh, can get taken for granted. And in this past year, when I was working on my book, uh, The Word of the Lord, Year A, which is a deep dive into the um, lectionary readings for Year A and the Gospel of Matthew, I really came to a new appreciation of the Gospel of Matthew, of its unique beauty, um, of how indebted we are to him and At what a a loss we would be if we did not have this gospel. Matthew is the only one, for example, who tells us about the visit of the Magi. So if we did not have Matthew's gospel, there would be no feast of Epiphany. Matthew is the one who records the Sermon on the Mount. Is Christianity even imaginable without the Sermon on the Mount? Could you imagine not having the Beatitudes? not having blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven in that whole consoling almost a poem of uh, eight blessings and then an epilogue that begins a famous sermon on the mount in matthew 5 through 7 and then there's those parables could you imagine missing being missing the uh wise and foolish virgins and not having the famous parable of the talents the five the two and the one talents or being without the sheep and the goats which by the way was uh today's gospel reading for those going to daily mass uh, in uh Ordo latin rite um and also that is the reading for the last day, last sunday of the liturgical year of course christ the king is typically uh the sheep and the goats that's only in matthew so we would be very impoverished if we did not have this uh, gospel. Um, It is the best organized and balanced of the four gospels. It's very systematic and comprehensive. Uh, Matthew makes makes sure to get everything in that we need to know. Now, my personal favorite among the gospels is the gospel of John, my namesake gospel. But if I had to go to a desert island and could only take one gospel with me, it would be Matthew. Because Matthew has everything that you need. Matthew's like that balanced meal, you know, from the USDA with uh, all four food groups, etc. John skips stuff. See, John doesn't have an account of the baptism. John doesn't have an account of the transfiguration. John doesn't even have an account of the institution of the Eucharist. Why doesn't John have these things? Well, because John knows you've read those things three times already. So he wants to talk about something else. He wants to delve into, you know, these powerful signs that Jesus performs and show how they uh, anticipate uh, the power of Jesus released in the sacraments. So that's kind of a John's song and a dance. And there's a lot of other things going on in John. I love John. But um, John is kind of a supplemental gospel. Uh, in addition, kind of presuming that you've uh, read Matthew or, Uh, One of the other, what we call synoptic Gospels, those are the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, uh, getting back to Matthew, I mentioned it's the most systematic and comprehensive. Also, the most explicitly Jewish of the Gospels. So, constant references to uh, Jewish culture. Um, We find Jesus uh, arguing with the Pharisees, and Matthew includes Jesus's own rabbinical arguments, oftentimes Mark and Luke will pass over those, but those are very important to Matthew, who's writing to Jews who have converted, or may be thinking about converting to Christianity, and so he's careful to show how Jesus defended himself from a Jewish perspective, and we'll see some examples of that when we look at some specific passages. One of the things that marks him as being the most Jewish of the Gospels is his extensive quotations from the Old Testament. So there are 50 explicit quotations of the Old Testament in Matthew, more than any other gospel, and over 200 references in general to the Old Testament when we include not only explicit references or quotations, but also allusions, allusions and echoes uh, and other kinds of less direct ways of referring to the scriptures of Israel. And that Jewish flavor and those extensive quotes from the Old Testament make Matthew the ideal bridge between the Testaments. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why the church has always placed Matthew first to make that nice segue between uh, the Old Testament into the New. So let's um, talk about respected Matthew. Now, uh, when I talk about Mark, I put up a, a picture of Rodney Dangerfield because Mark never gets any respect, as they say. He's uh, the poor gospel that uh, generally gets neglected. But when talking about Matthew, uh, you cannot say that Matthew has not gotten respect. Matthew has always been Highly respected, always been regarded as canonical and inspired. So I was trying to think of some figure in American culture who still commands universal respect, which is very difficult to do these days. But I thought maybe Abe Lincoln uh, is uh, one of the best uh, candidates for that role. So trying to convey that idea of universal respect. Everybody has always respected Matthew. So our early Christian writings, like Ignatius of Antioch, the saint who is largely responsible for me coming into the Catholic Church with his dramatic testimony to the real presence, Ignatius is strongly influenced already in the year 106 by the Gospel of Matthew, as is the famous Didache, that early catechetical document shows strong influence again of Matthew. Uh, Matthew was a favorite To be commented on by the church fathers. Origen wrote a 25-volume commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Can you imagine that? And that was before desktop publishing and word processing and all of that. He did that all with a quill. You talk about publication inflation nowadays, you know, Origen was already doing that back in the third century. And uh, the other, the other uh, fathers as well, probably Matthew was the favorite gospel uh, for a commentary. It has always been a perennial staple of the lectionary. So in ancient lectionaries, as well as the modern, you get generous amounts of Matthew being used. Um, oftentimes, uh, just to digress a little bit, when you compare the different gospels, when they have a similar account, Matthew's gospel is oftentimes... The most pastorally stated. Like uh, when you read Matthew's account, it's clearest for public proclamation. Um, The way Matthew states things and records things usually doesn't have a lot of theological ambiguity. Um, And it, it just kind of works really well. Whereas sometimes Mark is a little rough and sometimes, you know, Luke can be a little bit confusing, but Matthew really states things well very nice for liturgical proclamation. Okay, well, let's talk about who Matthew was, which is our main goal tonight. You know, it's Lent, we're trying to lean into our spiritual practice, we're trying to embrace our Catholic faith more. And one of the ways that we could do that is by really getting to know uh the saints, getting to know the biblical figures. And this is so precious to me as a convert because um As a Protestant pastor for um, the early part of my career and as a Protestant Christian until I was age 30, uh, I loved Scripture, um, but there was this distance between myself and the biblical characters. But upon becoming Catholic, I realized that these gospel authors that I loved so much could also be my personal friends. I could ask for their prayers I could develop a relationship with them. And that's a whole added dimension to the study of Scripture. So beautiful. And so one of my goals tonight is that we develop a, a beginning of a friendship with Matthew the Evangelist. You know, we can we can pray to him. He is a patron saint of uh, several different causes and uh, just a, a magnificent hero who used his record-keeping skill to such good advantage for the benefit of all of us. So let's get into learning just a little bit about him from scriptures. And the scriptures don't tell us a great deal about his biography, but we can kind of piece a few things together, as you'll see, as we move along. So he's also known as Levi, and famously he is a former tax collector And we read about the account of his conversion and a following after Jesus in Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Now, in Mark's gospel, he's called Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, So he's known by two names, both Matthew and Levi. We'll come back to that in a moment. Sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So this episode is recorded in Mark 2.14 and also in Luke 5.27, but in both of those Gospels, he is referred to as um, Levi. So let's move to the follow-up of this. And by the way, the image that I have on screen there is Caravaggio's famous uh, painting of Matthew, where Jesus walks into this dark room with light streaming in and is motioning at Matthew, and all of Matthew's friends notice Jesus, but Matthew himself doesn't notice the Lord. He's too busy counting out his money. So, uh, you know, we have that that tendency to get fixated on some kind of idolatrous, uh, uh, you know, object in our lives, and uh, Matthew had made money into his idol until the Lord came to free him from that But here, reading from Luke, the continuation of the story, uh, Levi, who's the same as Matthew, made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house. And the Pharisees murmured, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That is such a consoling line. And You may recognize those of you that um, get to daily mass or at least do the daily readings. We had that reading from the calling of Matthew just a few days ago uh, in daily mass. And so many people know that line, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. That's kind of ingrained in our memory and our knowledge of the teaching of the Lord. But we often forget that the context for that famous statement of Jesus was the calling specifically of Matthew, the man who would write the first uh, of the Gospels. So let's uh, see what we can piece together here about um, his biography. So when we continue on to Matthew, we find him mentioned again as one of the 12 apostles Uh, These are the apostles, Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, and James, son of Alphaeus. Now, Matthew is usually mentioned as either the seventh or the eighth of the apostles, and he's typically mentioned close to Thomas and James. Notice that James here is called the son of Alphaeus. This James, son of Alphaeus, is James the Lesser. James the Greater, of course, is James, uh, son of Zebedee, one of the top three of the apostles. Uh, Now, James, son of Zebedee, was uh, beheaded very early on in the church's history, and thereafter, obviously, did not have much influence over the course of the church. But James the Less son of Alphaeus, went on to become bishop of Jerusalem. He figures prominently at the first church council recorded in Acts 15. He's mentioned uh, in Paul's epistles. Sometimes he was at odds with Paul because James kept more of the Jewish tradition than uh, Paul felt was appropriate. And uh, they argued about that a bit, but they came to reconciliation about it. Um and uh, James also wrote the famous epistle of James. So that's James, son of Alphaeus, who's called the brother of the Lord uh, in his epistle. Now, who was Alphaeus? Well, according to one of the earliest of the church fathers, Poppius, Alphaeus is the same man, also known as Cleophas or Clophis, who shows up elsewhere in Scripture. And he was a brother of St. Joseph, the foster father of our Lord. So this would be why James, son of Alphaeus, is referred to as the brother of the Lord uh, in his epistle, because he would have been Jesus's cousin, and St. Joseph would have been James's uncle. And likewise, James's dad, known as Alphaeus or Cleophas, those are variant ways of transliterating his Hebrew name into Greek, that would have been Jesus's uh, uncle. So he was a relative. But now getting back to Matthew, Matthew in Mark's gospel is also called the son of Alphaeus. And so in the Eastern tradition, Matthew and James have long been regarded as brothers. It is a little bit unusual that they're not mentioned explicitly as brothers in the Gospels, whereas, say, John and James the Greater are, and Peter and Andrew are mentioned as brothers. But this invites a little speculation. Why are they not identified as brothers? Um, I can imagine, perhaps, that when Matthew uh, went into tax collecting, he probably got disowned. (laughs) uh, So, that might have been a bit of a riff later healed when they both follow Jesus, but still, James was probably promoted to eldest son when Matthew left to work for the Romans. This is, of course, speculation on my part. We can't prove this, but there might be something like that in the background. Uh, What we can be certain of is that um, it was very traumatic for Matthew's family, which is doubtlessly a good Jewish family, to have their son go into tax collecting for the Romans that you know tax collectors in the ancient world had about the same kind of cultural status that drug dealers do in our culture i mean very few people have anything good to say or think about drug dealers you go into that it's clearly uh, that you're about profit you don't care about the fact that you're ruining people's lives you are generally regarded by you know all polite people as being you know a real creep and a detriment to society, and that's how tax collectors were viewed as well. Going over and working for the dark side, you know, collecting money on behalf of the hated oppressors. Um, why would you do such a thing? Your only motive could be profit, and so you're a very selfish, self-centered person. So uh, Saint Matthew was a a social outcast uh, prior to being called by the Lord. And even after being called by the Lord, we can expect that the fact that he had a history in tax collecting was still a sore point between himself and some of the other apostles. And the apostles are very human, right? We see them jockeying for rank and attention, et cetera, at various places. And uh, I think that we are on solid ground to think that, you know, Matthew's past came up periodically and uh, he felt very humiliated about uh, what he had been, what he had done, and ashamed, and all of those things. But he is a great example to us of conversion, of leaving behind a life of sin, of you know, turning over the new leaf, of giving one's life over to the Lord, and using one's gifts and talents in a different way. So. We can surmise why Matthew probably went over to tax-collecting. Uh, from from the evidence of his, of his gospel, uh, he seems to be a very good and accurate record-keeper. And he seems to have been, in fact, trained as a scribe or as a rabbi. He was probably in training to be like a Pharisaic rabbi. But that kind of bookish training involves a lot of accurate writing and record-keeping. And at some point, he must have thought, hey, I can make a a good living from these skills if I put them in service to the Romans. And so he went over and did that for a while in a kind of a a shameless uh, career. But Jesus saw something in him that others did not see and called him into the band of the twelve. And then having followed Jesus, his gifts of record keeping and his accuracy and his scribal training, it all turned out to be extremely useful for composing the church's primary gospel. So it's a really a beautiful story. If we have things that we're not proud of in our background, if we ourselves are converts from less than admirable uh, kinds of activities, we can find in Matthew a kindred spirit, an example, one who sympathizes with our weaknesses and can pray for us, and we can go to his intercession uh, as we try to make progress in the spiritual life. Let's advance to um, look at where Matthew shows up in the book of Acts. So the next time that Matthew is mentioned outside of the Gospels is once in the book of Acts when it's recording who was present for Pentecost. And we read, then they returned to Jerusalem for the mount called Olivet, and they went to the upper room. Peter, John, and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, um, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot. So we notice, again, Matthew mentioned close to James. Um, why is it Matthew called son of Alphaeus here? Well, because he's the only... Uh, disciple named Matthew, whereas James uh, has another uh, disciple sharing the same name, so he has to be differentiated from James, son of Zebedee. But again, always mentioned close to James, and then Simon the Zealot and Judas, uh, the son of James, and they're all together in prayer, and then uh, the Holy Spirit falls uh, on them all. Let's talk about the name Matthew for just a minute. We saw that his original given name was Levi. um, But at some later point, he acquires this second name, Matthew, that is used occasionally. And uh, what's the reason for that? Well, church tradition is that Jesus gave him the name Matthew. We notice that our Lord likes to give people new names. So... Simon becomes Peter or Kephas, and uh, John and James become the sons of thunder. Uh, Jesus has a kind of wry sense of humor. And, uh, you know, basically Simon becomes Rocky. That's what Peter means, just like Rocky. Okay, you're going to be Rocky, okay? You're gonna be the you're the rock that I'm going to build the church on, Rocky. All right? And, and you hotheads, yeah, you're going to be sons of thunder. Yeah, that's what I'm going to call you. And uh, Matthew, yeah, you're gonna call you gift of God because that's what Matthew means and I think before he was called a disciple nobody thought that Matthew was God's gift to humanity uh in his role as uh, this unscrupulous tax collector and but Jesus turns that around and says that, you know yeah you're gonna you're gonna become a gift to humanity now a gift from God and so calls him Matthew which is and that is what uh, Matthew means. It comes from Matis Yahu in Hebrew, which means gift of the Lord. Okay, gift of the Lord. So that's a little bit about uh, Matthew. And um, we mentioned that he might be the brother of James. And indeed, that's what the Eastern churches uh, recall and celebrate about those two. Uh, one piece of evidence that supports that um, Uh, supposition, is the fact that uh, the Gospel of Matthew and the Epistle of James sound very much alike. And modern scholars have spilt a lot of ink doing comparisons between the Epistle of James and Matthew, particularly between the Sermon on the Mount and James. There are so many verbal parallels between those. So, if these two men do come uh, from the same family, Um, that would explain some of the similarity in language, approach, attitude, diction, etc., that we see reflected in their writings. Let's go on and talk about um, Matthew as he's mentioned in the church fathers. And so I mentioned Papias already. Papias is one of the earliest of the church fathers, And uh, some of his comments are recorded by St. Eusebius, the early church historian. And Papias was one of the apostolic men, one of the first generation of Christians after the apostles, who grew up under the tutelage of the apostles. And he writes in in one of his uh, documents, If then anyone who had attended on the elders came, I asked minutely after their sayings what Andrew or Peter said, or what was said by Philip or by Thomas or by James or by John or by Matthew or by any other of the Lord's disciples which things Aristian and the elder John called here presbyter John the disciples of the Lord say for i imagined that what was to be got from books what was not so profitable to me as what came from the living and abiding voice wow What a beautiful testimony from somebody who remembered Matthew when he was alive and remembered learning at his feet, the living and abiding voice of the apostles. And that's so important for us to remember as Catholic Christians that even before the New Testament was written down, there was that oral tradition from the apostles and other forms of Christianity the kind of Protestantism, for example, that I was raised in are so book-focused, so bookish, uh, you know, with these slogans like sola scriptura, which means the Bible alone, and this attitude that all you need is the Bible, you don't need the church, you don't need tradition, you don't need the magisterium. But look at what this the earliest generation of Christians said. They loved the living and abiding voice of the apostles. And for us today, you know, that, that living and abiding voice is not dead. That is the voice of capital T tradition. It still comes to us through the church's liturgy, which passes down faithfully the teaching of the apostles. So again, a beautiful testimony. Let's go on and see what else um, uh, Popius says in a later uh, writing. He describes how Matthew put together the uh, gospel. He put together the oracles of the Lord, or the sayings of the Lord, we could perhaps translate that, in the Hebrew language. Uh, this might mean Aramaic, uh, because oftentimes Aramaic, which was the actual spoken language of the Jews, uh, is referred to as Hebrew in the first century. Uh, Hebrew proper, though, was a dead language, for the most part, in the first century, it was a language spoken by scholars and by the rabbis, but the common people tended to speak a related language, uh, a form of Syriac called uh, Aramaic. And uh, there's several rites that continue to celebrate in Aramaic. I have two Chaldean priests in one of my Bible classes over at Franciscan University, and um, they uh, celebrate their liturgy in Aramaic, which was the spoken language of Jesus and the apostles and the Jews of his day. So that's really fascinating. But uh, again, Matthew put together the oracles of the Lord in the Hebrew language, and each one interpreted them as best he could, which might mean translated them as best as he as he could. And then about um, the man referred to as Matthew's father, um, Poppius writes on another occasion, Mary was the wife of Cleophas or Alpheus. So Poppius considered these two to be the same man, who was the mother of James, the bishop and apostle, and of Simon and Thaddeus, and of a certain Joseph, okay, also known as Joseph in um, the scripture. So this Mary, wife of or Cleophas or Alpheus, she's mentioned as being present at the foot of the cross. Uh, really, in most of the Gospels, sometimes she's identified as Mary, the mother of James, or Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. In the Gospel of John, she's identified as Mary, uh, wife of Clophas, and she's described as the sister of the Blessed Mother. In context, that probably means um, female relative, indeed sister-in-law because they were both married to brothers. Obviously, the Blessed Mother being married to St. Joseph, and um, Mary being the other Mary being married to um, St. Joseph's brother, Cleophas or Alphaeus. Now, you might ask, why does it seem that two out of three women in the New Testament are named Mary? Uh, isn't that a little bit weird? What is going on there? There's actually a historical explanation for that. Uh, The favorite and most popular queen of uh, Herod the Great was named Mary. His favorite wife, and she was very popular with the people, uh, was named Miriam uh, in, uh, in Judaism. We would translate that as Mary. And so for about a generation and a half after Herod the Great... Everybody named their daughters Mary after this excessively popular queen, and that's why you find so many Marys in the New Testament. Nobody would make that up if they were trying to write fiction. It was going to write a fictional book where, where like all the women are named Mary, uh, but it's not fiction. It actually was like that back in the first century, and uh, we could show it. It's actually a mark of authenticity uh, of the Gospels. So getting back to this, let's look at some other fathers, Irenaeus. Uh, So we all love Irenaeus, a second century father, wrote his famous uh, Against Heresies, an early apologetic work. And he mentions that Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews, by which he means Jews, in their own dialect, language, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. So this would place Matthew's Gospel being written in the 60s. I know scholars place it later, um, but that's for modern re- reasons. Uh, I think that if we're believers, and furthermore, if we have trust in church tradition, we would have no reason to s- not to accept what Irenaeus says there. Uh, just let me give a quick aside. The reason why when you pick up a, a typical modern commentary— and they tell you that, uh, say, Matthew and Luke were written in the, in the 80s, uh, AD, okay? The reason for that is typically a lot of modern scholars uh, don't think that Jesus' end-times discourse could have been written before the fact. Okay, the end-times discourse, for example, in Matthew 23 through 25 says some things that so clearly were fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 that a lot of skeptical modern scholars think it had to have been written after the destruction of Jerusalem because how could Jesus have known such specific things? And so they place Matthew and Luke, for example, after the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, you and I believe that Jesus is the God-man and that he had prophetic insight, and that he knew the future. So you and I would have no reason to date Matthew's gospel after the destruction of Jerusalem. We have no problem believing that Jesus knew and foresaw those events and spoke about them in his Mount of Olives discourse in Matthew chapter 23 through 25. And so you and I would have no problem accepting what the tradition is, is that he published this gospel in the 60s while Peter and Paul... We're both in Rome. Let's uh, look at what St. Jerome says about uh, Matthew's gospel. The first of all the gospels is Matthew, the tax collector, who is also named Levi, who published a gospel in Judea in the Hebrew language, chiefly for the sake of those from the Jews who had believed in Jesus and who were by no means observing the shadow of the law, since the truth of the gospel had succeeded it. So St. Jerome's basically saying, that Matthew wrote for Jewish Christians, that was his main audience, and that he wrote uh, first in their own language, in the language that they spoke to reach them. And that's a lesson to us all, all of us are most effective in reaching people who are like us, people from our own culture, people from our own demographic, and that's always the best place to start in evangelism. And that's where Matthew started as well. He was a Jew of Jews, had rabbinical training. That's very obvious from certain parts of his gospel, where he can get very technical on the Jewish law. And so he writes a gospel, reaching out to those he knows best. And yet, Matthew's gospel does not exclude anyone. Matthew has that universal perspective. So at the end of the gospel, he writes of Jesus speaking to the apostles all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, etc. So even though Matthew wanted to reach out to his own people first, he never lost sight of the, the missionary uh, mandate to reach people of all nations. And he definitely has that universalism, or we could say that Catholicity, about his gospel as well. Let's look at this longer quote from St. Jerome about uh, Matthew. This is from an often forgotten work of St. Jerome called uh, Illustrious Men, where he basically goes through heroes of the Christian faith. And I believe the fifth hero of the Christian faith that St. Jerome lists is Matthew, also called Levi. Apostle and sometimes a publican who composed a gospel of uh, Jesus, uh, excuse me, the gospel of Christ at first published in Judea in Hebrew for the sake of those of the circumcision who believed. But this was afterwards translated into Greek, though by what author is uncertain. Okay, the, uh, the Hebrew original of Matthew is lost to us, but it was not lost in Jerome's day. He writes, the Hebrew itself has been preserved until the present day in the library at Caesarea, which Pamphilus so diligently gathered. I have also had the opportunity of having the volume described to me by the Nazarenes of Berea, a city of Syria, who use it. In this, it is to be noted that wherever the evangelist, whether on his own account or in the person of our Lord, the Savior, quotes the testimony of the Old Testament, he does not follow the authority of the translators of the Septuagint, but the Hebrew itself. Wherefore, these forms exist out of Egypt, have I called my son, and for he shall be called a Nazarene. Those are two quotes of the Old Testament from Matthew's gospel that only work in Hebrew. And we'll take a look at them at a later point. Okay, so this is, um, you know, really filling in some of the gaps about Matthew uh, from the church fathers. And at this point, we can kind of sum up what we know about Matthew the man. So, he was a tax collector, probably trained as a Jewish scribe before he went into collecting taxes for the Romans. His given name at birth was Levi, later named Matthew, probably by Jesus himself with a wry smile. Son of Alphaeus, he's called, as was James the Lesser, Possibly a uh, brother of James, although this is not emphasized in the Gospels. Uh, perhaps he had been disowned and there was some uh, awkwardness between the two. Uh, we don't know, that's uh, purely speculation. But again, in the Eastern, tr- Eastern tradition, he is uh, considered to be James' brother, and thus a cousin of our Lord through Alphaeus, who was the brother of St. Joseph. Strong similarities between the Gospel of Matthew and the Epistle of James. Both are very practical and focused on, um, on our action. You know, it's Matthew that records our Lord saying in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Okay, not only is that the teaching of our Lord, the very words of our Lord, but it's also very Jewish in its outlook. Uh, in Judaism, you do not know something until you can actually perform it. Okay, Jew- Jewish culture is not impressed merely with academic knowledge. Uh, Jewish culture looks for the ability to put things into action. We see that also reflected in, at the end of Matthew's Gospel. In the Great Commission, Jesus tells the apostles to go out into all the world and teach them to observe all that i have commanded. The end of Matthew's gospel does not have the gospel the apostles commissioned to teach all that i have commanded, but literally to teach them to observe all that i have commanded. And actually w- what that means is we are supposed to teach for practice. Okay? Teach for practice it is. Teach for transformation. Uh, If any of us are in any kind of catechetical or educational role within the church, our job is not done until our students are actually living it out. That is a major theme in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's not stressed in Western education, which can be oftentimes uh, very remote from lived reality, but Jewish education was very much focused on uh, practice. And so uh, the, the patristic tradition tells us that Matthew went on to do quite a bit of evangelistic work himself, and different church fathers place him in different areas, but there's widespread agreement that he spent a considerable amount of his ministry in northern Persia, okay, near the Caucasus and just south of the Caspian Sea. There were large Jewish communities uh, there in ancient times. Maybe that's why he went out to that area to do evangelism. And that was where he was martyred, although we don't know how he was martyred. The church leaves that as an open question. So this is St. Matthew, a great model of conversion, a great example of using your gifts um, for the service of the Lord, whatever those gifts may be. A great example of reaching out to your own people, your own family first, but never losing sight of the broader picture of people from all nations. As Saint Jose Maria says, out of a hundred people, we're interested in a hundred. Um, that was definitely true of Saint Matthew, interested in the Jews first because he was most effective with the Jews, but he never lost sight of hundred percent of uh, humanity it are the ones that we want to uh, reach out to with the gospel. So. That's a little bit of an overview of Matthew, the man. We're trying to develop some devotion to him during this Lent. He, after all, is the one who records the famous Lenten teaching of fasting and prayer and almsgiving that we use on Ash Wednesday. If Matthew hadn't written that down, we would be so impoverished. So we really want to lean into Matthew and, as I said, develop some devotion to him. And so this has been a start. For tonight, tomorrow, we'll be looking more specifically at his book. But at this point, let's throw it open for questions, and uh, and I'll do my best to answer what uh, you guys might be interested in.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Berksma. Just a really enlightening look at Matthew. I had no idea that he was probably the brother of James. That's crazy.
1: Who knew, right?
2: <laughs> Where did you learn that?
1: Well, I mean, you piece it together from the fact that he's called son of Alpheus. That's where I first noticed it. And I'm like, well, James is as well. So what's going on here? But then you start looking in tradition and you find that Alpheus has a feast day in the Eastern tradition. And, you know, the Eastern rites have just considered the two to be brothers, you know, going way back. So this is something that's been noticed for a long time in the church. Wow.
2: It's so cool. So cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Berksmaud. So, Dr. Bergsmo, you ready for some questions? I'm ready. All right. Um, first of all, can you address the? There were some questions coming in. Can you address the the whole contention that that some scholars have made that Matthew didn't actually write the book of Matthew?
1: Yeah, yeah, I can address that. Um, look. Uh, Pope Leo XIII in his encyclical Providentissimus Deus uh, of 1893 um, writes that when we read the scriptures, there are three infallible guides, and those three infallible guides are um, the analogy of faith, which is the harmony of the Catholic faith within itself, uh, explicit magisterial statement, you know, when the magisterium has intervened authoritatively to clarify the meaning of a passage, and then um, the universal consent of the fathers, okay? So, biblical issues about which all the fathers agree uh, are not open to debate for those of us who are faithful sons and daughters of the church. There are not a whole lot of biblical interpretive issues that the fathers all agree on. But one that they do is the authorship of the four Gospels. All of the fathers endorse Matthew writing Matthew, Mark writing Mark, etc. From that unanimity, uh, even just as the from the perspective of a, of a historian, you have to take that with great weight. And the church is always understood that if the fathers are unanimous on something, that's because it's capital T tradition. It was universally handed down. Otherwise, you would get some dissent somewhere uh, among the fathers with all the diversity that there is amongst them. So, the fathers are unanimous that Matthew wrote the gospel. So, I think that's a given for us as believing Catholics. Now, many uh, Bible scholars are not believing Catholics, maybe not even believers of any kind. Uh, They are Uh, by and large secular that's very common uh, in biblical scholarship and so you have to be a bit cautious and even even good catholic uh, authors may have very good intention but they may not be aware of the definitions of leo the 13th and the unanimous consent of the fathers and they be maybe influenced or even intimidated by uh the statements of um you know uh publicly regarded or famous uh, secular Bible scholars. So you need to keep that in mind. Um, But I regard that as a given. I mean, there's different ways to understand how Matthew wrote it, but the fact that Matthew is responsible for this gospel should be a starting point for our thinking and our theologizing uh, as Catholic Christians.
2: Andrew here on screen, go ahead, take yourself off a mute and ask your question.
1: Good evening. Thank you, Doctor. It was uh, was an inspiring webinar. Um, I have a question uh, with regards to Matthew. When you look at his uh, genealogy of Christ and and Joseph and Mary, well, not Mary, in particular, yet mentions Joseph, but I, I also but there's no mention of Mary. But I, I read elsewhere that the Mother of God is also a descendant of uh, King David. Right. Yes. That is correct. There is no doubt that the Blessed Mother was of the house of David as well. Uh, St. Paul refers to our Lord as a descendant of the house of David uh, in Romans chapter 1, in the early verses of Romans. And that could only be through his mother, of course, since he didn't share uh, blood with uh, St. Joseph, Mm -hmm. as important as St. Joseph is to our Lord and to us as well. I'll give you my brief explanation of this. Uh, I've done work on these genealogies and I've written this. Um, This is not dogma, but my own, my personal view on the relationship between the genealogy in Matthew chapter one and the genealogy in Luke three. And if you compare those, you'll see that uh, St. Joseph is given a different father in those two genealogies. His father is, is named as Jacob In Matthew chapter 1, and he's called Heli in Luke chapter 3. Now, it's clear, I I think it's clear to me, and I think to others as well, that uh, Matthew is introduced, is interested, not in biology, but in Jesus's legal claim to the throne. Because that genealogy in Matthew 1 goes from father to son in the line of kings. And the point is not so much Where Jesus came from biologically, because uh, Matthew distances our Lord biologically from Jacob at the end of the genealogy, but uh, does Jesus have the claim to the throne? And he does, because he inherits it from his legal father. Now, Luke 3, however, does seem like it may be interested in Matthew's, uh, sorry, our Lord's uh, biology there. And I believe that the genealogy in Luke 3 is actually the genealogy of the Blessed Mother through her father, who is called Heli, in Luke 3. Why would Heli be listed as, as uh, Joseph's father, though? Simple explanation, clear as day. In Judaism, when a man married an only daughter, he became the full son of her father, so when when joseph married mary mary was an only child remember he became son of not only his natural father jacob but also the man called heli who is the saint known to us as saint joachim listed in luke 3 and i think that's the the biological genealogy of the blessed mother which also goes back to david it's davidic but it's not in the direct line of the kings so he inherits the throne through his legal father, Joseph, but he's from the line of David also through his mother. That's how I see that. So that's an excellent question. Thank you so much for answering, asking that.
2: And, you know, Dr. Bursma, there's a lot of questions that have come in um, regarding Matthew's genealogy and, and wondering if there's a link, since you were talking about how great of a record keeper he is, if there's a link between the uh, the genie the the keeping of the genealogy in Matthew and his record keeping abilities.
1: Well, I think so. I mean, uh, I think uh, his scribal training is probably why he got picked as the uh, class note taker by the twelve. I mean, most of the rest of them were fishermen, and uh, like, okay, who among us could take good notes? So, <laughs> fisherman, 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 accountant. Okay. Well, you, Matthew, you get the job. You're gonna take notes for the course, for the for the class. And uh and then, you know, his his uh writing down of the teaching of our Lord becomes the basis for this early gospel.
2: Maria here on screen, you can go ahead and ask your question to Dr. Berksma.
0: Yeah, so so like Annie, I also uh hadn't heard, you know, the um
1: the brother of James. Um what I have heard is that um maybe he was named Levi because he was from the tribe of Levi, which would seem to contradict him being the brother of James. So could you talk about that a little bit? Well, um I'm not sure uh why let's see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But he was
2: okay. called yeah. Levi yeah, because called
1: Levi, yeah, yeah, sure. And so if uh if he's a son of Alpheus and Alpheus is brother of Saint Joseph, Saint Joseph is from the house of David. But you see, um, you had intermarriage between the priestly and the royal lines. That that was not uncommon because they rubbed shoulders. These were kind of the leading fam- the two leading families were the priestly families and the royal families. Hmm. So it's not it's not impossible that uh, you know, there was Levitical blood also within you know, that the family of St. Joseph and and St. Cleophas. But regardless, um, uh, you know, being named Levi could mean that he was from the tribe of Levi because that was a favorite name among Levites, but by no means was it exclusive to them. Um, You find, uh, you know, find the name Levi being used by other tribes, etc. And really all of the all of the patriarchal names get employed by you know Jews regardless of their descent so um that's uh that's not conclusive uh necessarily um but uh, i'm sorry i forgot uh, was what was your original question no i just i just wanted your thoughts <laughs> yeah, about you know sure. that that interpretation that he right. was from the tribe of levi yeah yeah it's possible but not conclusive
2: joan here on screen go ahead with your question uh okay. They're
1: taking my question. Do we know if Matthew was a follower of John the Baptist? Um, I don't think so, okay? Andrew and um, John seem to have been followers of John the Baptist. Uh, there's reason to believe that because um, there's a long tradition. Well, Andrew is mentioned as being a follower of the Baptist in John chapter 1, and then the unnamed other disciple who's accompanying Andrew has long been thought to be John himself, the author of the Gospel. And indeed, there is a lot of similarity in language between the Gospel of John and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and many people think that John the Baptist came from that community that left us the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, there's a lot of uh, circumstantial evidence that would suggest that Andrew and John were followers of John the Baptist— But Matthew's tendencies seem to be with the Pharisaic movement. So oftentimes when you compare parallel gospel passages that are recorded in Matthew and also recorded in Mark and Luke, Matthew will include Jesus's defenses of his actions according to Pharisaic logic, okay? Like Jesus would, for example, when... um, Uh, When Jesus uh, heals the man with the withered hand, in Matthew's account, our Lord defends himself against the Pharisees by saying, if any of you had an animal who fell into a pit on the Sabbath day, would you not pick him up? How much more so this, this man who is injured? That is a classic form of Pharisaic argumentation, where you argue from the lesser to the greater, if you would do something in a lesser circumstance, excuse me, how much more would you do that in a more important circumstance? So if you would save an animal out of compassion from an animal, how much more should you have compassion on a human being? That's classic Pharisaic logic. It only shows up in Matthew. So it seems that Matthew was concerned to um, to defend our Lord's ministry and to give an apology or, uh, you know, an appeal for uh, our Lord's ministry towards the Pharisees. And that suggests that he came out of the Pharisaic movement. Likewise, James, uh, not only is James described as being close to the Pharisees in Acts and some references in Paul's epistles, but uh, his letter uh, shows kind of coming out of that mindset that that kind of pharisaic worldview Uh, obviously both james and matthew had fully converted to christianity were wholehearted followers of jesus but we're all kind of influenced you know by our backgrounds and how we see the world i was raised as a protestant so i've got certain tendencies even though i've fully given myself to the catholic church you know but so we have that some some of that background that can be a help and a hindrance you know but makes us effective to reach our own kind, right? So uh, Matthew was reaching out towards Jews who were like him, trying to show them that Jesus was the answer to what they were looking for.
2: Uh, Dr. Berksma, Susan writes in asking, what prompted Levi or Matthew to just kind of stand up and follow Jesus, speaking of his conversion?
1: We don't know. You know, there's not an explanation given in Scripture. I mean, we can speculate. um, But, uh, you know, perhaps uh, Matthew had noble impulses in his youth when he was being trained, uh, you know, ultimately to be a scribe or a rabbi himself. And then fell prey to the desire for money. Um, But Jesus sees, you know, those noble impulses still in his heart. And calls them, and that resonated with him, and he rises up and follows the Lord. But you know, I it, it's it's just speculation. It, you know oftentimes the 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 gospels leave questions like that unanswered, and those are openings for our prayer. you know, We can take that to our prayer and we can kind of roll those scenarios in our mind and think through them in the presence of the Lord. This is what the saints would do, Saint Jose Maria Escriva. Uh, used to use his imagination in prayer. he would take a gospel scene, take it in front of the tabernacle, and then live into that gospel scene and try to imagine what the dynamic was and uh yeah, that can be a rich way of kind of entering in and the whole the whole chosen movie series is kind of like an effort to do that's kind of like imaginative prayer. really think that those people who have very noble motives are kind of do that and trying to imagine the the way that this would all play out.
2: Funny you should mention The Chosen, yes. because I think the uh, most amount of questions that have come in tonight are, right. what are your thoughts on the portrayal of Matthew in The Chosen, Dr. Bursma? Yeah.
1: Well, by and large, I mean, I like the show. Uh, I respect them. I usually don't like uh, Bible, you know, drama, Bible movies, Bible TV shows, because I often find them cringy and historically inaccurate Uh, But I've enjoyed watching uh, the first couple of seasons of The Chosen. I'm a little bit behind, but my wife and I are going to catch up uh, during Lent on what we've missed. Um, They do a good job of being historically accurate. There's a few little things, but I'm like it's within kind of artistic license. But the whole thing with um, uh, Matthew being kind of, uh, you know, is portrayed like a a person with kind of Asperger's syndrome, kind of. And... um, what do I think about that? Well, um, I think it's within artistic license. Uh, I mean, I there are many people in my family that are on the autism spectrum disorder, have a touch of those tendencies towards you know being compulsive and things like that like Matthew's portrayed. And I think there's actually something beautiful about it because it it shows that the GS can use all of us. And uh, yeah, obviously Matthew's uh, personality, Uh, makes him very good at some things like record keeping, right? Can be used for Lord and not so great at others. But the beautiful thing about following the Lord Jesus is that we learn to use our strengths for the gospel and the Holy Spirit also can help us to minimize our weaknesses. And I think you see growth in Matthew's character in The chosen as He allows the Lord and the Holy Spirit to do that in his life.
2: Uh, Amy here on screen. I missed where Matthew evangelized.
1: Yeah, Uh, we get a lot of different reports of Matthew going to different areas by various church fathers, but one place that they all agree on is that he went to northern Persia, just under the Caspian Sea. And that was an area that uh, had uh, several large Jewish communities, Jews who had migrated out east various reasons over the centuries and so it and in fact there are jewish communities in in the, those parts of the world even today they're, they're smaller now because of persecution under the muslims and so on but still remain some out there uh, but uh, yeah it seems like he went east to minister to those eastern jewish communities and eventually uh, gave his life for the faith uh, out there
2: anthony here on screen go ahead and ask your question in speaking about the chosen and, and Matthew's uh, portrayal, they're showing they're showing him as being a note
1: taker. Is that
2: is? Do we find that anywhere in scripture that
0: uh, he was a note taker?
1: No, it doesn't say that explicitly. Um, it's a reasonable conjecture, and uh, and they did take notes. You know, we we you know we tend to think that ancient people were so primitive. Uh, They weren't that primitive. Um, The Roman Empire was highly sophisticated. Uh, They had shorthand systems. Uh, They were very skilled at rhetoric. Um, They had uh, note takers who could take down speeches from public figures and we get kind of transcriptions of uh, speeches by Augustus and by other public figures uh, back in the day. Um, So the idea that uh, one or more of the disciples... um, you know, took notes on Jesus' teaching is, is a reasonable, um, you know, hypothesis.
2: Sabrina, on screen, go ahead with your question.
1: Because the Chosen portray uh, Matthew as in, an artistic person, so now when people have seen the show, automatically think that Matthew is artistic. I wonder if anywhere in the scripture had
2: indicated that he is artistic— and also because his special skill of
1: keeping records and his rabbinic, you know, talents and stuff, you know, where does it say that he he is artistic? Yeah, it doesn't. That's part of their, uh, you know, speculation or, you know, artistic right. license to portray uh, that um, they decide to go in that direction. Uh, but uh, yeah, it is... That's their decision. There's no clear evidence for that in Scripture. Um, So that's not authoritative.
2: Um, Dr. Bergsma, Neil asks um, if you might speculate on any symbolism behind Jesus giving Matthew the name Matthew. You were kind of joking about Rocky. Um, do Do you have any insights onto Matthew? And he asked also, was that a common Hebrew name at the time?
1: It was reasonably common, it was not one of the most common, like um, John and John and James, and, and by the way, James is really Jacob, okay? Uh, there's a weird history of that in the development of the English language, how we got James from Jacob. I could go through it, but it would take about a half hour to explain how that happened, and I don't want to do that right now, but James and John were the most common names uh, back then john means the grace of the lord and james is jacob who of course was the father of all israelites so you can imagine why those were so popular matis Yahu uh is a later um jewish name it starts cropping up in later books of the bible um you know kind of in uh, the late monarchic period and into the exilic period so not as common not as popular Uh, in terms of speculating as to why Jesus named him that, I think it was an ironic reversal of how he was viewed, um, you know, as a tax collector, he was viewed as like the minister of Satan, basically like messenger of the evil one. And just like, well, we're going to flip that around and we're going to make you the gift of God, you know, a gift of the Lord. Um, and that's, that's. As much, you know, that's the best I can imagine as as to why uh, that would have been. But there's, again, a long tradition in the church that Matthew was indeed a nickname bestowed on Levi uh, by our Lord. He had this tendency to, um, you know, give give nicknames to those he was close to. And in fact, he promises he'll do that for us, too. In uh, the opening chapters of Revelation, he says, for those who overcome... We're going to get a nickname on a white stone when we get to heaven that only he and we know. It's got a little private, private nickname between each of us and Jesus. So, uh, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, but you have to keep yours on the DL. You can't tell other people what it is that Jesus calls you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think that is a great place to end for the evening. So looking forward to the next couple of nights with you, Dr. Bergsma, on uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So tomorrow night is the book of Matthew, correct?
1: Yes. Looking at the structure, we're going to do some stick figures. Nice. So everybody has to draw. So bring your paper and your pencils, and uh, we will literally draw the structure of the Gospel of Matthew in an easily memorizable or memorable way. And, uh, and then we'll look at some specific passages and, and do a little bit of uh, exegesis of some key passages where the major themes of the book show up.
2: Dr. Bergsmo, would you mind uh, closing us in prayer?
1: Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening that we've had together and this opportunity to learn more about and grow closer to your holy servant, Matthew a man that you specifically chose for a special role within the church. You saw good in him when no one else could see it. And Lord, we know that that's true of us as well. Despite our sins, our failings, all the things that we are not proud of, you are able to see the potential that we have for good. You still see the embers glowing of your image and your likeness within us. And you call Uh, call us all to follow you and to be purified, to turn away from our sins, and to realize uh, that potential for holiness that sometimes you are the only one who can see uh, within us. So we thank you for all that uh, tonight, Lord. We thank you for this chance to grow in our relationship with this saint. We ask for his prayers and his intercessions uh, for us, that we may live a holy Lent and uh may truly put into practice uh those those instructions that he wrote down about prayer and fasting and almsgiving as we live those practices intensely during this lent we ask all this through christ our lord and in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen saint matthew bless. pray for us
0: We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers and family members. To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work. Visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.